0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out why so many Canadians say they'll be looking for a new job in 2023. 50% of 1100 surveyed by Robert Half, up from just 31% six months ago. What's changed? We speak to an Afghan-Canadian journalist about the latest attack in the Taliban regime's ongoing war against women's rights in that country. Last week they banned women from attending university and prohibited them working for aid groups or charities. The former is devastating. The latter could be deadly. It's been 40 years since Lotto 649 made its debut in Canada, ushering in an era of very long odds and very big jackpots. Governments to this day remain addicted to the revenue they earn from selling and promoting lottery. Is the benefit worth the cost? But first, Rogers and Shaw are one step closer to a massive $26 Billion dollar merger after the competition tribunal dismissed arguments that the deal would mean higher costs and poorer services for consumers. What will the impact be if the deal indeed goes ahead? And why do so few companies dominate so much of the telecom industry in this country? Well, what are a few words you think of when we talk about telecom service in this country? Expensive, unreliable, uncompetitive, monopolistic? Those are a few that come to my mind. Imagine in 2020, I looked this up, three companies, Rogers, Bell, and Tellus, had an 88.6% share of the retail mobile revenue market in this country, 886 And imagine that's actually good because it was 92% back in 2014. So it was sliding. There was some more competition out there. So that's why this proposed $26 billion merger between Rogers and Shaw communications is such a big deal. It's really one of the biggest mergers this country has seen, most important ones uh, that this country has seen in a very long time. Yesterday, something called the Competition Tribunal gave that deal the green light, rejecting the Competition Bureau's arguments that the deal would mean higher cell phone bills and poorer service for us, especially in Alberta and BC, where Shaw is a big player. That decision has cleared the way for the deal to go ahead, only needing approval now from the federal industry minister. Uh, Minister Champagne's office say they will review the decision in detail. Opposition leader Pierre Polyev was asked about this today at a news conference, and he says he has serious concerns about more consolidation in the telecom sector.
1: Well, I have very serious concerns about more consolidation. We need more competition in our telecom sector. Uh, We don't have enough competition. We saw that uh, with the Rogers shutdown Uh, That occurred, uh, I think, seven months ago now. We're going to be looking very carefully at the tribunal's ruling before pronouncing our final position on this. But our purpose in all telecom policy is more competition and choice so that we can have lower prices and better service for our consumers.
0: Well, Rogers and Shaw were pretty pleased with this decision late yesterday. For consumers out there, the companies say the deal will benefit us because it gives them the scale to capitalize fully on new things like next generation wireless technology, 5G services, getting it to all of us across this country. They couldn't do that on their own, they say. Well, today came the fallout. First, Rogers and Shaw say they've extended the closing of this deal to the end of January. It was supposed to happen by the end of 2022. And today we found out the Competition Bureau is actually going to appeal the Competition Tribunal's dismissal of the case and will apply for an injunction to block the deal from closing until an appeal is heard. So this is some really high-stakes stuff going on. Uh, David Soberman joins us now from the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. David, thank you for your time. No problem. Good evening. So this was a really um, sort of very active end of the week in this whole deal, wasn't it? We got the decision from the Competition Tribunal, and today we got the fallout.
2: Well, that's right. And I think a lot of Canadians remain quite interested in what's eventually going to happen. Uh, When the decision came out, perhaps we thought we knew, Okay, this thing is going to go through. But now with the delay of the decision and now with the uh, announcement that the uh, Competition Bureau is going to appeal the decision, the outcome is perhaps much more uncertain than we originally thought.
0: Yeah. Tell me a bit about what the just how this works for people who don't understand the competition bureau obviously weighed in on this, and then the tribunal's where the companies can go to argue against that does that decision, and that's what happened. What did the tribunal the tribunal rule exactly? Why did they think that the competition bureau's argument wasn't valid?
2: Well, I guess um the tribunal is supposed to be an an objective adjudicator in these issues. The competition tribunal <clears throat> brings the issue to the actual tribunal and asks the tribunal to stop the uh, takeover and they hear arguments from both sides and then they make a decision and i guess they felt that videotron uh, would remain robust and become a stronger competitor because by acquiring freedom mobile it will now extend its reach into ontario Uh, They also argued that um, this merger would not lead to a decline in the quality of service. Um, What I would say about that is, given our experience this summer with Rogers, it's hard to imagine how service could decline. So maybe they are right about that. Um, And finally, um, there's the idea that Rogers will be a stronger competitor for Bell and TELUS in Western Canada, which indeed is probably the case because Rogers is weaker in Western Canada And that's where Shaw is strong. So those are the arguments they presented. But I think the one thing to remember about this court case is that it's very difficult to prove that prices will go up or down in advance of a proposed merger. I mean, you're sort of making a decision about what you think is going to happen. So typically what competition tribunals have done is they've looked at concentration. And when they think that the concentration in an industry is too high then they may stop an acquisition. And because when there's too much market power, typically prices do go higher and consumers suffer.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was the Competition Bureau's assessment of all this. Um, at this point in time, as far as I understand, uh, we have two things going on now. One, the Competition Bureau has appealed this, so that that is a process that will unfold. And then again, ultimately, it all rests with the minister, right? And he's under... A fair amount of pressure here, I would think, to uh, to be very judicious about this one.
2: Yes, I mean, I think that um, I, I think probably <clears throat> this would be an easier decision for the minister if we hadn't had the incident in this this summer with the uh, Rogers uh, service outage. I think that's actually raised a lot of concerns in the mind of Canadians not just about the prices, which we know are very high and not competitive compared to other countries, but also about the quality of service. The argument was always, well, you know, we pay high prices, but we've got excellent service, and this isn't what you get in other countries. And I think what we're seeing now is that argument probably is not as strong, uh, given what has happened, as perhaps people thought it was. And so that really does put the minister under a great deal of pressure, to do what's right because in a sense he's in that position to try to protect the benefits of Canadians not of the people running the telecommunications companies.
0: When we look ahead a little bit what happens now because the Competition Bureau has appealed um, and this all ultimately ends up with the minister so and, and I guess today we heard that Rogers and Shaw have pushed back the close on this to the end of January from the end of 2022.
2: Well, I imagine that probably there needs to be a decision by the competition tribunal on the appeal before the minister will make a decision. So you may see some changes in the timetable. So it's really hard to say. And, you know, it's hard to also know how long this appeal will take to be prepared and to be heard by the tribunal or who exactly the appeal goes to. I'm not sure of the actual judicial process when the Bureau appeals a decision of the tribunal. But usually this does take time.
0: Yeah, I mean, the um, the tribunal's decision was done quite quickly by tribunal uh, standards for the, for the original decision, which came out last night. We're supposed to see the reasoning behind it sometime over the weekend. Uh, when you look at what impact this could have on consumers, I mean, ultimately... What really matters to most of us, I think, is especially out here at West and Alberta and B.C., is will it mean better service? Will it mean improvements or will it be bad for us? And, and I guess that's the $26 billion question if you're a consumer.
2: Um, I agree completely. And I think, um, unfortunately, in Canada, we have had an experience with our framework, which Um, makes judgments and tries to determine whether or not we've got enough competition in the Canadian market has been rather ineffective. For the most part, mergers have taken place and often Canadians have suffered. So unfortunately, I would say I'm a bit pessimistic about the likely outcome of this merger. Um, I, myself, would like to see more competition in the telecommunications sector. In particular, I would like to see many of the restrictions on the level of foreign ownership in telecommunications companies, especially those that are are providing mobile service, to be reduced. Because I think that's one of the things that makes the industry a little bit too cozy for the incumbents, that being Rogers, Bell, and Telus. So, you know i I don't think we are really seeing a change here that's going to massively improve things for Canadians. I wish I could be more optimistic, but I'm not
0: yeah I mean anyone who's been away who's had to use cell phone services or who's lived in another country and used cell phone services in Europe or recognizes just how much we pay I mean we understand some of the some of the constraints here, some of the challenges that uh telecoms face in this country, but still. It's remarkable how much cheaper it is in in other places. Uh, how much, you know, this is going to be a really tough one for the industry minister because again, you know, the leader of the opposition Pierre Polyev came out today talking about the need for more competition. The NDP has been a big big on this for years now. Uh, uh, Francois Philippe Chopin has has a pretty tough call on this one. If he says, what are the what are the consequences if he says no?
2: Well, I think one of the issues is that typically what you're going to have in a situation like this is horse trading going on. And so it's going to be pretty hard given all the things that have taken place, including, for now anyways, the Competition Tribunal rejecting the Competition Bureau's request to stop the merger for the minister to actually stop it. But I think he's in a good position to put some constraints and bring in some rules that might be able to help Canadians get better service. Now it remains to be seen what those might be. And my view is typically the best way to ensure better service and better quality is to increase competition. But perhaps there are some things that he can do that will actually make things a bit better for us here in Canada. But as I've said before, for me, the main thing is a change in the legislature and in the act. Um, I I think there have always been constraints on uh, foreign ownership with regards to this particular sector because of the cultural dimension. But I think when it comes to mobile phone service, I'm not sure that argument has a lot of validity.
0: And the Competition Act is under review as we speak, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think on an ongoing basis, I think this is something that we really need to think about in Canada. I mean, for the most part, the vast majority of our industries need to operate in a competitive framework. After all, we're in NAFTA, and good Canadian companies need to go to bat with good American companies. But there are certain sectors, whether it's transportation or telecommunications or banking, that are protected. And when you have a protected uh, sector, you need to ensure that there's a high level of competition. And if I go back to the banking sector, the one thing that's interesting about our banking sector is that we actually have five major banks. That actually ensures a pretty high degree of competition. In contrast, in our telecommunications sector, we have only three major companies. And there's been a lot of research that has actually been done on what level of concentration um, is going to ensure uh, or allow companies to collude or to tacitly collude. And a lot of the research suggests that if you have four or more competitors in an industry, then, in fact, you'll have a fairly high level of competition. That might actually be one of the problems that we have in the telecommunications sector because there's only really three companies. And when you have that number of companies, even though they don't explicitly write contract to keep Prices high, they all realize that if they start cutting prices, then the only people that are going to gain are consumers. And of course, given that they're in the business of making money, they don't do that. So I think this is really sort of something which we're going to see play out over the longer term. But for sure, this is a sector in the Canadian economy that needs more
0: competition. David Soberman, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Have a nice weekend. Happy New Year.
2: No problem. It was my pleasure and happy New Year to you and also all the listeners.
0: Well, this may not come as a huge surprise, but you know what a lot of people are going to be doing in 2023, at least according to a new Robert Half survey? Looking for a new job. Half of their 1,100 respondents are currently looking or plan to look for a new role in the first half of 2023. That's up from 31% six months ago. So a 19% jump. That means half of those who responded, 650 or 550 people, rather. Yeah, my good math. 550 people of the 1100 are either going to or are already looking for a new job. It seems incredible because we're reading about economic slowdowns, cutbacks, layoffs in the tech industry, which is usually where a lot of the more uh, confident workers come from. Um, but unemployment ro- unemployment rates are still really low. Obviously, the job market is still very tight. So a lot of people out there think, well, wow, you know, there could be something better for me out there. There's some real trends in here too. Nearly 30% of professionals say they're looking at full-time contract work so giving up the security of full time for something that offers potentially more flexibility and uh, returning to a previous employer was also a consideration for about 40 percent of people surveyed willing to go back to a former company if given a salary equal or higher than their current pay a reminder the grass is not always greener on the other side so what is driving all this joining me now is david bolden he's regional director at robert half thanks for your time
3: thanks ben it's great to be here
0: So, I mean, we talked a lot in the past little while about some storm clouds on the horizon uh, economy-wise in 2023, but Canadian professionals seem like a pretty optimistic bunch heading into the new year. How is that manifesting itself?
3: I think we've, we've seen a lot of positive trends coming through the end of 2022, and that's been carried forward into 2023. We did a survey recently, and we um, we surveyed over a thousand workers across Canada. And the uh, the outcome of that was fifty percent of the people that we spoke to were either looking for a new job for the new year or planning to start looking for a new role in the first half of twenty twenty three. So. That's just given us great confidence that the the employment market is heading in the in the right direction. We did a similar survey six months ago, and that number was at thirty one percent. So to see the increase and the general positivity coming from the Canadian workforce is uh, is a great thing to hear.
0: I suppose it's not so positive if you, if you're an employer, though, right? And fifty percent of uh, professionals are looking to uh, to switch. What do you? What is behind it? What is it that they're looking for? <laughs>
3: Well, it's tough to say because I think on the one hand, it might not be good news if you have a a staff member leaving, but on the other, it is a great way potentially you can attract new talent into your business. So for some companies out there, it'll be great for them to bring in fresh ideas, fresh way of doing things, and and others, it, it could be a chance to maybe reshuffle what they've got in their organization. but. There's a number of factors that have driven this. We 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 asked the, the individuals on this survey what was their driving force, and the number one response was a higher salary. We've obviously seen the cost of living increase over the last year quite dramatically, and higher salary has been a, a huge factor in people looking for jobs. And then secondary to that, it's things like better benefits, it's better maybe career advancement opportunities, or just more flexibility in when and where they can work.
0: I, I gather we're seeing certain segments of the workforce uh, are more prone to wanting to move than others, and that's uh, true of, I guess, younger workers as well as as tech workers. Uh, who, who else is who, who is in there? Who is really what group is really looking to move?
3: Spot on. So the the Gen Zs and the millennials are the, the generation that is more likely to make a career move, and, and tech professionals, as you mentioned. But one of the big things that I thought was interesting coming out of the survey is that. The majority of people that responded to this survey, 61%, in fact, have been with their company between two to four years. And I think that just gives a real good indication of maybe if you are looking at your own workforce and you are thinking potentially there's the opportunity that people may leave. That might be the area that I look at first to see what can I do from a retention perspective? How can I engage with these professionals to make sure those that I have working for me that I don't want to leave um, are truly engaged and, and are happy in their career?
0: When also working parents, I gather, is one of the groups looking to make a move, I would imagine that has a lot to do with flexibility.
3: Spot on. We we saw a significant number of working parents that were uh, considering looking for new jobs. And I think flexibility has been a a huge factor on that. We've seen a lot of organizations that maybe through the pandemic suggested they were going to stay very hybrid or, or remote in their working schedules that are now asking for people to come back into into the office and if you're a working parent like myself something like that flexibility to work from home is super important or maybe it's window working or just have the flex having the flexibility that if you've got to do the daycare run or you you have a a sick child that's that's home from school that you've got the ability and flexibility to take care of them
0: one of the things i gather sticking with the idea of flexibility that is becoming a lot more popular i know this from a recent experience outside of journalism where contract work was uh was in heavy demand from the organization I was working for. I, I guess contract work is becoming more po- more popular and at least a more viable option for a lot of people out there.
3: Yeah, we, we, we weren't surprised maybe by these surveys as we've seen maybe the number of contracting people increase over the last few years. And nearly 30% of workers are considering quitting their job to pursue full-time contracting. And I think this all comes back down to the flexibility piece we spoke about. When you're in that full-time job, you do have certain restrictions around when and where you can work and and what your deliverables are. But if you move into the role of a contractor, you become a bit more of your own boss. And I think people have really enjoyed some of the freedom they've had with that over the last um, couple of years. It also goes some way to kind of reinforce that positivity in the market where people feel confident that there is work out there for them as a contractor, because historically people may not have left the security of full-time employment If they didn't feel like there was something out there for them to keep them fully engaged and um, if there's a number of people that are confident going into contracting, it gives you an idea that they must have a positive feel about what's available in the market from an employment perspective.
0: Another aspect of your survey that was interesting was what is driving people out of jobs? Because clearly there are things that uh, will lure people to other kinds of work, whether it be contract or other full-time positions. But you also looked into what it was that was driving employees out of their existing roles. And it was interesting that uh, unclear, unreasonable job responsibilities was cited by more than half of those who who are losing interest in their work. It's an interesting one to be so high, I think.
3: Absolutely. And again, I think it comes down to the challenges we've faced maybe with that hybrid working where it could be that historically your manager was sat next to you and that gave you direct feedback, instant feedback on things that you were doing well or things that maybe needed to improve. Maybe there was tasks that needed achieving in a real quick time frame that they could judge how busy you were or could just put onto your plate if necessary very quickly. Now people are working remote we don't have that same instantaneous touch points as we used to do. So that sometimes leads to unclear, unclear directions because you get an email. Of something to do, or you get a a quick um, instant messaging note of what your objective is for the day. When historically it was maybe a little bit easier to communicate some of those um, tasks when someone was sat directly next to you.
0: And the communication piece of that uh, was almost equally as important to those uh, who cited dissatisfaction with their current position. I imagine those are two P's in the same pod, so to speak.
3: Very much so. And I think that that line manager relationship now is a bit harder for both the manager and the reports. You could kind of get a bit of a feel for someone based on how they walked into the office one day. Whereas now, if you don't speak to them every single day, or on a frequent basis, it's a little bit harder to judge. So yeah, there can be a breakdown of communication there. And that can be from the manager, or it can be from the employee.
0: David, I know that when people think about moving, it's it's one thing to think about it. It's another thing to actually do it. Uh, what sort of advice do you have for those who are considering 2023 for a, for either a career change or at least a job change?
3: You've nailed it there, Ben. It's one thing to think about it. It's another thing to actually do it. And my advice to anybody who's thinking about doing a career change is to just truly understand the reasons why. Our recent surveys have always shown or often shown that compensation is a factor for that and I say that anybody that is looking to change jobs purely driven by compensation should have a conversation internally first it's have that conversation with your manager with the uh, the company that you work for to see if they can offer you something on that front because Whilst that can sometimes be a bit of a tricky conversation to navigate, it may be that if you go to your your, your manager with justification for why you'd like a salary increase, a definitive outline of what you'd like that salary increase to be, they may be able to find it for you. And that is a lot easier sometimes than going through the whole process of, of looking for a job elsewhere. So... I always say anyone that's looking for a job, truly understand why your change is. Is it job? Is it flexibility? Is it commute? Can any of those things be changed in your current job first that will keep you happy? Because that will be a lot easier than going through maybe numerous interviews, the application process, the time investment of finding a new job
0: yeah and it's always um i mean, one of the things about quitting, of course, is you is you never know if the grass is greener on the other side, right so it is a uh you do have to go through a fair amount of uh of soul searching to figure out whether it's the right move. You talked in the last uh segment about contract work that too can be a bit of a leap into the unknown because what seems like the kind of flexibility you would want to have uh when you have a full time job and the security of that uh, can be a very different beast once you get into full time contract work.
3: Yeah, I think the thing with contract work is you have to be comfortable with, A, knowing that everything is going to be new each time you start a new contract, and you've got to be comfortable with learning new employees' names, new systems, new ways of doing things. But then you also need to be comfortable with maybe not getting a job straight away. You have to ask yourself, how would you feel if moving from contract to contract or project to project took slightly longer than you thought? Would you be comfortable with that? Some people, it's great, it gives them a chance to unwind, have more vacation, spend time on other projects. Other people, it's quite unnerving. So, the grass, as you say, may be greener, but but for me, the grass is always greener where you water it, and and think about where you want that to be.
0: It's still going back to that original survey number, though, the the jump from 31 to 50%, the idea that 50% of professionals surveyed out there are either looking or about to start looking for new work, it it does strike me as pretty astounding. What can managers or employers do to try to recognize those signs and they must be out there and also to try and retain the talent they have? Because, of course training talent hiring and training is a huge cost and losing employees is uh, you know can be a real real devastating blow
3: the worst thing a manager can do is bury their head in the sand and just like having a conversation with an employee um, with your manager about asking for salary raises can be difficult it's the same sometimes breaching conversations with your employers employees because you might be afraid of what that answer might actually be so The biggest advice I have to managers is open that dialogue and keep that dialogue open because if you don't ask people how are they enjoying their job, what do they enjoy about it, how do they want to see their career evolving, you'll never know because chances are people won't tell you as proactively as you'd like. So as a manager, I always encourage people to have open and honest conversations frequently with their team and try to act upon any of the feedback that you get from those conversations.
0: So looking ahead to 2023, it feels like a lot of what we saw in terms of trends in 2022 will simply continue, that people that uh, employers still feel, or employees rather, still feel uh, pretty emboldened about what's out there for them if they feel like it's time for a change.
3: Yeah, I agree. And I think that the big thing here is how can companies be thinking outside of the box, maybe to offer something different? Where we've seen organizations to hire, um, organizations who've struggled the most to hire, is when they've been asking for people in the office five days a week. Obviously, there's certain industries and there's certain companies that require you to be in the office five days a week, but I would encourage any company out there to think about how can we offer some form of flexibility, some form of hybrid or window working or something to show flexibility, and that will certainly help, but then it's also being creative in things that you can offer people, so if you can't offer higher salaries, can you offer more vacation? Can you offer study allowance? Can you offer something that's a little bit different that will keep an employee engaged and retain them for a longer period of time?
0: David Bolton, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time today.
3: Thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Well, one of the cornerstones of our long and deadly mission in Afghanistan was to ensure equality, more equality, at least for women and girls in that country. Under the Taliban, women had been pushed into the shadows, really not allowed to work, not allowed to learn, not allowed to circulate without a chaperone, covered up, invisible. That had changed. When I was there, we often went to girls' schools, still dangerous, but a whole generation was given the opportunity to learn. And they did so with incredible dedication and remarkable enthusiasm with the return of the Taliban in August of 2021 that has quickly changed again advances made are being reversed fast first with a ban on secondary education a ban on working in government the chaperones are back the strict dress codes are too and last week an almost indescribably uh well not odd but just it's hard it's head scratching a ban on women from working in aid agencies or charities and a ban on attending university. The latter, the attending university, that's devastating. It's devastating for the women of Afghanistan. But the former could be deadly. And that's because women provide the backbone for a lot of these aid agencies and charities that operate, NGOs that operate in Afghanistan. A lot of the work they do is worth mothers and children and so on. Um, And there's no one to replace them. And because of this... Because of this announcement, aid agencies, major ones, are pulling out. They're going to stop working there. And this is at a time when the country is facing unbelievable humanitarian problems. Starvation, famine, um, sickness, illness, cholera, you know, indescribable stuff. And here's the Taliban essentially saying to this one population, this one group of people, you're out. You can't work any of these things anymore. The, the reasons are... Inane, you know, they're not wearing their headdress properly. It's all, it's all, none of it's true. It's just a war against women. That's what the Taliban's about, right? War against women. They may also be looking for some leverage here uh, when it comes to dealing with the West. They may want some recognition in return for trying to, for easing some of these bans that they put in place they've already banned women from going to high school girls women have been pushed out of again the government jobs and all that stuff i mentioned earlier so what can be done now we see protests going on in neighboring iran is there any chance that happens in afghanistan what can the international community do tough questions joining me now is afghan canadian journalist zara natter she's editor-in-chief of the zan times and a phd student at york university in toronto zara welcome back thank you
4: thank you ben for having me here
0: I wish it was under better circumstances. Uh, What exactly did the government announce? And it seems to have come. I mean, it's not surprising, but it came as a surprise.
4: Yes, unfortunately, in the past week, there was two big uh, Taliban order made against women, uh, which I always consider it's a war against women in Afghanistan. And also what's happening, I would call this gender apartheid, what's taking place in Afghanistan. Uh, so on the 20th, they announced that uh, women are no longer allowed to go to university. And actually, they say this, that this is also temporarily. But of course, we know what temporarily means now, because that is like, it's more than 450 days that they promised school for girls in secondary school and high school will be open. But we we, we are yet to see that when that will happen, yet This was a complete ban uh, on women's education in Afghanistan. So basically, uh, from now on, no women in Afghanistan are are allowed to study beyond grade six. That's in terms of the education that that are going on. And then four days later, after the the first issue banning women from uh, universities, there was another um, order from the Taliban's Ministry of Economics Banning women from uh, working with uh, local and international NGOs in Afghanistan. Basically, they were um, already women were already banned from working in most public sectors. If I just take it back uh, on uh, August twenty fourth, two thousand twenty one, just in, in, in Taliban's second week in power, they banned women from working um, in public sectors except the places that they cannot be replaced by a man. Uh, So basically, uh, that is the situation. So women do not have the rights to work, do not have the right to education. And this is happening in a country that 98% of the population are not earning enough. And half of the population is at risk of starvation and uh, acute hunger, and especially children.
0: What it, What is the official line? What is the Taliban saying to justify these moves, particularly the NGO move? But what is it saying about, about both these moves uh, to try to justify it?
4: It's very, very interesting because they're an ideology group, which they have a particular hatred toward women. And what they do is they claim that their official claim is that women are not observing their dress code or the hijab that they are calling The strict rules that the Taliban issued uh, requiring women to cover their faces in public and have a segregated office uh, when they're working, or even the classrooms. So these were already made, the changes were made, the Taliban are imposing, you know, since they took over last August. Day by day they're implementing their own policies, building a gender apartheid in Afghanistan. So basically, right now, the territory of Afghan women is basically their own house. They're being confined to their houses, and uh, unfortunately, there is no legal entities that are working or someone that this woman can go to and ask for help. And I'm saying this, that this is happening in a country that even before the Taliban take over to uh, 95% of uh, violence against women were happening in the house. And really worries me is that right now we don't have a clear picture of what is exactly happening to women in Afghanistan. They're all suppression that the Taliban are attacking media, journalists. So anyone trying to bring some information out is also under attack.
0: After all the work that was done for so many years to try to provide a, a more equal uh, a more equal opportunity in Afghanistan, we've essentially turned the clock back to the, the late 90s now when the Taliban was first in power. And, and if you prefer, we've turned it back hundreds of years. Um, tell me about the NGO situation, because my experience, and this goes back a while, in Afghanistan was that women provided a really important backbone to non-governmental organizations in Afghanistan especially because as you pointed out so much of the work is done with women and children uh the impact of that could be could be deadly if women aren't allowed to work in those organizations
4: it is and especially it is because afghanistan is facing uh drought um and female like situation beside the the situation that the taliban created so we are facing uh, this coming winter is going to be a deadly winter if uh, the Syraconian order are, are not reversed. First of all, is that uh, now so many women who are working with these NGOs who were able to feed their families will be adding to the number of the people who cannot and they're any longer in Afghanistan. And the second part is that most of these NGOs who closed their operation in Afghanistan, they were providing service to the most vulnerable, who were women and children. So one big question would be, even if these NGOs were continuing their work in Afghanistan, who they would be serving? Because, you know, the most population that are affected, that do not have, and that are suffering the most under the Taliban are women and children. Um, and most of the work were being done by women in this uh, organization because they were the ones serving women and children. Um, so it would be a very, very challenging and difficult situation. And I'm so sorry that the world have waited so long to come to this because early on, even from before the Taliban came, uh, people of Afghanistan and women were warning from this moment that this will come, that we will get to this. The world was very, it it has another narrative of, no, the Taliban has changed. But we knew from the beginning that they are not changed. They are the same, the Taliban. But of course, now it's, again, the people of Afghanistan, and particularly women, who have to pay the cost of the decision that they never made.
0: Uh, Zara, I've seen... Some protests. I've seen people rising up. We saw some protests in the summer as well in Afghanistan. Um, we've seen the international community condemn this. We've seen um, the uh, uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation condemn this. Uh, what can be done to try to get the Taliban to change course here?
4: Um, my understanding is that so far, for the one and a half years, the world was accommodating the Taliban, and they were cutting on on women's rights, human rights, uh, committing uh, a horrific human rights violation in Afghanistan. But of course, the world was concerned, the international community was concerned from the very beginning. But it has done nothing to take that concern, uh, to bring them into actions and think concretely, how can we prevent this situation? I see some of the reactions, especially the statements made even by Canada, one of the countries that made statement about uh, the issue and asking the Taliban to reverse course. However, it's evident for us that the Taliban are not going to change course unless they're forced to. So now, uh, my understanding is that the problem in Afghanistan need a coordinated action of all the countries who are concerned about human rights, who are concerned about women's rights, and also all the countries who were involved in Afghanistan in the past twenty years to come together and work coordinatedly, and and uh, and. Look for ways where they can hit the Taliban, where it's most effective. So far, we don't see any sanction on Taliban's leader. We don't see any concrete action to really respond and say, this is it. We are not going to take enough, you know, like you have cut down, you left just nothing for Afghan women to live, to survive. You have even taken their ability to feed themselves. So what else is left there? So basically, even um, on the 20th, one of my uh, colleagues, she's working at Zan Times. We we are working with a group of women journalists in, in Afghanistan. She sent me this decree and wrote me just, you know, like they barely... It's just left for them to say that women can no longer live. They must be buried alive. So that is the situation Afghan women are feeling. And of course, we are seeing some of the frustration coming out and protesting. But the situation is very, very difficult when you're protesting under the Taliban because, you know, in every venue, people who who even speak and give an interview on the TVs, they are being um, um, arrested. They are being tortured for what they said. Even if they imply that they have critique against the Taliban, their life would come under danger. So this is the situation. Under the situation, these brave and young women are going and asking for their rights. But of course, we know nothing is going to come from the Taliban. There is no understanding that women are also human, that they also deserve rights. We know who the Taliban are, but the question is, how do the world respond to this? Um,
0: How do you? I mean, I, I think the problem that we're seeing is that the Taliban seem wholly willing to plunge the country into starvation, famine, we've already seen it, uh, just to push women back into the shadows. And it seems like it's very difficult to try to stop them from doing it. There's all these protests going on in Iran right next door. Is that in any way, the situations must be very different? I mean, I know the situations just in terms of uh, ability to mobilize the amount of people and so on. As you pointed out, it's a very different situation in Afghanistan in terms of the ability to rise up.
4: Yes, exactly. I think the situation is very difficult. And also because in Iran, so we have uh, for at least the recent decades, women were able to go to university to get an education, which helped them to get an understanding of like how they need to fight. And how the urgency of speaking up, of defending, of them coming together to raise their voice. However, in Afghanistan, I want to always acknowledge this because there's always an assumption and understanding that it is the problem of women in Afghanistan is the problem of Afghan culture and Afghan people and particularly Afghan men. I want to really address this, that we have to look things in context of history and culture of like how things get to here. And that is that we, it's four decades that we have uh, wars and conflict in Afghanistan. And we know that when in this started in the 1980s, particularly the US and some Western countries have intervened in Afghanistan and supported the most extremist, misogynist forces and give them weapon and money. For them to be enabled to get from nowhere to the to the top of the society and be the one that is uh, injecting their own ideology, injecting their own culture to the entire population of the country. So when there was no education for women, especially even during the Mujahideen, which were called by the U.S. president as a freedom fighters, even mm-hmm. under their rule, women in Afghanistan didn't have any rights. They were also banned from working in the NGOs so we have to be acknowledge this history that you know a society do not gets either you know a very free and open society overnight and it does not become and this uh, misogynist and uh, backward culture overnight it takes time
0: yeah i mean it feels like a, yet another step backward one can only hope that uh, that that in fact in the long run and perhaps with organizations such as and times and so on that in the long run History will march in the right direction for women's rights in Afghanistan, but it's hard to feel very hopeful right now, isn't it? Zara Nader, thank you so much,
4: as always. Thank you, Ben, for having me here. Lotto
2: 649. It starts where other games stop. The weekly Lotto 649 jackpot begins at half a million and can just keep growing. For only a dollar, it's the biggest little game in town. Lotto
1: 649, the biggest little game in town.
0: Forty years ago this year, that commercial aired. Forty years ago this year, Lotto 649 made its debut uh, in this country, the first nationwide Canadian lottery game to allow players to choose their own numbers It was a game changer. Uh, In fact, similar lotteries had spreaded up across North America, and they really ushered in a whole new era of very low odds and very high prizes, which, of course, was good news for those uh, selling the tickets. And that's what this next segment is all about. Um, When lottery came in, when government started selling, essentially promoting lotteries, uh, benefiting from lotteries was real about face for them because they had long shunned gabbling. It was one thing to profit from sin taxes on alcohol and cigarettes, but quite a different thing to actively promote lotteries at the same time as sort of warning people against, you know, play within your limit and so on. But they really did advertise the benefits, you know, the, the sort of get rich quick aspect of playing the lottery. Fast forward to 2022 and a fascinating new book, which we'll be talking about. Uh, And in the U.S., Americans spend more on lottery tickets every year than on cigarettes, coffee, or smartphones. They spend more on lottery tickets every year than on video streaming services, concert tickets, books, and movie tickets combined. One in four Americans buys a ticket once a month on average. One in two do so at least once a year. Avid players, much more than that. It's a near $100 billion enterprise in the U.S. alone. But is it an ethical one? Do the benefits outweigh the costs as both individuals get hooked on the promise of a big payday while the state becomes addicted to the easy revenues that it doesn't have to look for in other less popular areas, such as raising taxes or cutting spending? All of those matters are covered in a recently released book called For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America by historian Jonathan Cohen, and uh, he scratches away at some of the myths sold alongside those tickets, myths that have existed for years. And Jonathan Cohen joins me now. Thanks so much for your time on this Friday.
1: Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: So, I mean, lotteries are hardly new. You point that out uh, very early on in the book. I mean, this goes back a very long time. But they were, uh, governments at least, were, were averse to them for quite a long time.
1: That's right. And and in some ways, just to, to close the circle on what you were saying, you know, they were first used as mechanisms of public finance for government, um, as far as I can tell, as early as the 15th century uh, in Belgium. Some sources, I can't, I can't vouch for these entirely, think that the Great Wall of China uh, was funded through the use of a lottery. Um, but what really, what we're talking about in sort of the modern iteration goes back both in Canada and in the United States uh, to around the 1960s when they sort of reemerged in a moment of economic crisis for both countries.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that it was sort of a perfect storm of, um, of falling revenue and increasing expenses for social safety nets and so on. And along comes uh, this idea that you could actually benefit from getting people to gamble, essentially.
1: That's right. And, and in the United States, and I'm actually not as familiar with the Canadian case, but it was preceded in some in some many states uh, by bingo games uh, that, you know, churches especially would organize bingo games. There'd be a, a small tax levied, maybe you have to pay a licensing fee. Um, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that government would use gambling to profit, but it is a different thing entirely, as you alluded to in your opening comments, for the, the government to sponsor a game that's going to be sold at every convenience store in every corner of the country uh, or in every corner of the province. Uh, and, and that's just lotteries are different from other types of gambling. It's not a brick and mortar location. It's not a, you have to go to a specific spot. They are designed to appeal to as many people as possible and as many places as possible, uh, and as a result, they've really sort of opened the door and opened the floodgates uh, for other types of gambling um, in the United States, in Canada, and across the, and across the world.
0: Yeah, now you've looked into this, uh, which was fascinating because I was I was surprised by how little research there was out there, just considering what an incredible, incredibly lucrative business this is. But you pointed mm-hmm. out that there was a company in the states, at least behind the scenes, really doing a lot of the lobbying, a lot of the pushing here, to try to get these, uh, to try to get states to go ahead. Once, uh, once New Hampshire, I guess New Hampshire, famously tax averse, as you put it, <laughs> uh, yeah. went ahead with state lotteries back in in the late '60s. Then many others followed suit. But there were forces at play behind the scenes that benefited from this as well.
1: That's right. And and what, what, the context here is that the sort of the first wave of lotteries, which are confined. Uh, in the northeastern part of the United States, they, they, they're they okay, but they they don't meet expectations. And that's partly because the expectations are so high uh, that they're going to solve state budget problems forever and that people are never going to have to pay any taxes again. Um, and and those just aren't met. And as a result, the sort of appetite for lottery uh, declines. Uh, and Legislators would love the money, but it's sort of not worth their time anymore. And here comes this company uh, called Scientific Games uh, which introduced the first uh, scratch-off ticket uh, in Massachusetts in 1974, um, and they uh, engage in a process known as astroturfing, uh, where you create the illusion of grassroots support uh, to cover up a self-interested corporate campaign, uh, where they write lottery laws, they, they pay signature gatherers to put initiative campaigns on the ballot, they pay for advertising, all of this in the name of creating a, a proposal for voters that says, the lottery equals education, is the case in California, in Colorado, the lottery equals public parks, The vote for the lottery is not a vote for gambling. It's a vote for this cause. And that's what sort of restarts the spread of lotteries, uh, especially in the Western United States in the early 1980s.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right when it comes to the politics of all this um, opposing funding for for education or funding for sports teams or fields. I mean, that's hard to do, right? That's not gambling. That's opposing something concrete and uh, supposedly beneficial.
1: That's right. And, and that's still part of the game today. You know, I, I the, the British Columbia lottery, for example, feeds into the general fund, at least some some percentage of it. So theoretically, the British Columbia lottery can say, oh, we benefit police officers and schools and hospitals and, 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 and you know, plumbing, any number of services. Uh, but of course they do. It's just one of many sources that fund into the general fund. But it becomes a marketing campaign, a, a public relations effort uh, to frame the lottery, uh, as, as you put it, as a social good, not just as a type of gambling.
0: Now, when you looked at, um, at the actual impact in the U.S., now, of course, the U.S. and Canada are different in some senses that way. Um, many U.S. states are far more tax-averse than most Canadian provinces. But still, when you looked at just how much revenue – I, sort of the dream, I mean, the, the dream that lottery ticket buyers are sold is the dream of getting rich quick. The dream that, uh, that governments are sold is that this is going to be a big source of revenue for you. How much revenue is it, really? I,
1: I, I think you've you touched on it exactly right, which is that it's easy to look down on lottery players as being poor and stupid and irrational and wishful. And I think the, the legislators who brought in lotteries are just as uh, wishful and just as likely to believe in these magical uh, uh, hopes that a lottery is going to solve all of their financial problems. Um, and, and just to your question directly, uh, it, it, they, they, they do raise money. Um, you know, by, last, by my last accounting, I think it was $252 billion for states over the last 50-plus years, um, but that ultimately comes down to like 2 to 3% of state revenue for that time. So it seems like a lot of money on paper, and this is true in Canada as well, Seems like a lot of money uh, when you just look at the raw dollars. When you compare it to the overall state or provincial budget, it really is it, just a fraction.
0: One of the things I found fascinating because we obviously, I mean, even on this show, everywhere when when those mega bucks jackpots get up into the billion into the billion mark, right. obviously we talk about it. I, I was fascinated about the, the section where you talk about the introduction of what we was six forty nine in Canada way back when. I was actually in the UK when they introduced theirs and was working in a hotel and a bar. And some of my co-staff members were seriously worried about the kind of divisions that would exist in their family when they won. When, not if, when.
1: when, when, when like,
0: You're not right? going to win, trust me. You're not going to win. The odds are <laughs> extreme. Uh, but the idea that suddenly we got sold on these very, very, very short long odds and these very big prizes really was a huge change in the whole way that lotteries worked uh, right across the board.
1: Yeah, well, and so this is uh, – the, the games in, in the United States, uh, they're called Powerball and Mega Millions are the, the, the games that are sold in all 45 lottery states. Um, but these are uh, a type of game known as Lotto uh, that was, you know, first introduced in New York, uh, in, 19, in Massachusetts in 1978. Um, and I'll give credit uh, to Canada, you know, at every opportunity, um, the Canadian uh, Interstate Lottery uh, offers the first interstate or interprovincial Lotto game. Uh, I right. believe it was Ontario and Quebec um, a, a, in 1982. And that sort of sets the stage for what will ultimately become Powerball and Mega Millions. And obviously, as you alluded to, to, to the rise of 649. And I think um, the, the, the rise of these mega games has totally warped the expectation uh, of what a jackpot uh, is, what it means to be wealthy. Um, I think a lot of lottery players who I talk to uh, in my research around the United States have this belief as a rational and even though they know it doesn't make any sense, even though they know it would defy all probability, they have this belief that inevitably they're going to hit a jackpot and they don't want to waste it on a small win. They want to waste, they want, they want that they want their hit to be on a big one. And that's why they, they, you know, they don't play when it's only a hundred million dollars. And I say only in quotation marks, they play when it's a billion dollars or most recently $2.4 billion a couple months ago here in the U S which Seems totally crazy to me, but that is the, the logic um, that they apply and why these mega games just keep getting more and more mega.
0: Are we headed in the wrong direction, uh, Jonathan, where we sold a bill of goods about all this? I mean, really what we have is the state promoting gambling.
1: That's right. And, and to, to take an easy example, I mean, the it, it is in states' short-term economic best interest to sell cigarettes, right? States uh, in the United States make a—there's a tax On cigarettes, so theoretically, it is in state's interest for you to buy more cigarettes uh, because they make money off the top. Um, But you would never, ever. In fact, you see the opposite. You would never, ever see a state advertising, "Hey, go pick up some Marlboros, go pick up another pack." Uh, In fact, you see the opposite. You see states advertising, telling people not to buy cigarettes. Uh, And this is exactly what you have with gambling, where you see where our states, there are entire agencies. Uh, and entire fi- and officials whose job it is to get more people to gamble, uh, and that to me seems totally at odds uh with what government is supposed to do and what basically every other branch of the government actually does try to do on a daily basis.
0: We do know that governments here at least uh, obviously ask people to be where you know play within their limits, and so on uh, There yeah. is a recognition that there is, is- ethical issues here. Where is the damage? Like we understand with smoking, the damage is done in the long term to the healthcare system, right? Where is the damage done for lotteries?
1: Yeah, well, it, so there are. It, it depends on the estimates. There are some uh, de- based on the the sort of formal clinical definition uh, of problem gambling that estimates that as many as one percent of American adults uh, have what would be called a gambling problem uh, in, in some regard or on the spectrum uh, for for some degree of, of a gambling issue. Um, that, that would be sort of one sort of hidden uh, major cause that, that takes place really beneath the surface. Um, it's hard to see. It's hard to quantify. Um, but it's a lot of people whose lives are ruined or who, whose lives are affected, and they think they're the only ones uh, because so many people are sort of suffering in silence. Um, another issue, uh, that, another effect Excuse me, from from the rise of gambling. That's also again hard to quantify, hard to put your finger on. But it's exactly what you've alluded to already with the six forty nine, with the odds uh, of just becoming so so low and, and the prizes becoming so big. It's just totally warped what people's sense of wealth is and how they think they're going to get out. Um, you know, they, they so many people have sort of put their put their chips uh, into this pot and they really think the lottery is going to be their best way out. And as a result, I, I wonder. If they, ha- if the lottery didn't exist, theoretically, you know, if those people might be willing to take other initiatives or think differently um, about what their future prospects are, that's a little bit of a, of a, of a wonky one, a little, a little squishy, um, but I think it's it's u- useful to consider uh, what the effect is of so many people sort of putting all their hopes and dreams on on the long odds of a jackpot.
0: Yeah, it feels like a conversation we should at least be having. And you, of course, mentioned that that socioeconomically, uh, those who are, I mean, this is literally a tax, right? You're buying, you're giving yep. money to the government with the hopes of yep. winning something back. Um, but but that those who can least afford it are those who spend the most.
1: That's right. So, so the estimates are that as much as uh, 70 to 80 percent of total lottery sales uh, come from the top 20 to 30 percent of lottery players, and that is a group that, in the United States, uh, is disproportionately lower, lower income, uh, less educated, and non-white than the average uh, than the average American and than the average lottery player.
0: But as you mentioned, the alternatives for governments everywhere are cut services, cut, raise taxes—none of neither of which is popular. Right. Or just yeah. keep on. You know, I, I, at the end of it, for the for the same reason it became popular in the first place, is it does always feel like a bit of a victimless. Ethical breach when we when we sell lottery tickets to people and use it for revenue.
1: That's right. So so lottery players, and including the uh, including this, the the one percent of folks with potential gambling problems, uh, especially if they're less educated and on white and lower income, they're sort of out of sight, out of mind for legislators. You know, it's easy to just see the money coming in. Oh, what was the the British Columbia lottery sales this month? Oh, great, and not to, not to even think about the effect. That That money is having on the people uh, who are contributing to it, um, and the real question uh, to, to take a counterfactual point of view would be, oh if the lottery didn't exist, surely these people would be gambling anyway and, and that that's sort of implied by this idea of a voluntary tax because no one's forcing you to p- play the lottery people you know you are forced to pay taxes but you're not forced to buy a lottery ticket and the the response there is that's right the lottery. Uh, some of these people would be gambling. Absolutely. But there is no way that the United, that in the United States, the lottery would amount to almost $100 billion uh, in revenue every, every year, or in Canada, just over $9 billion in revenue every year without the cooperation of state governments and without the cooperation of major uh, corporations. So, yes, some amount of gambling is inevitable and voluntary. but. When you get down to it, when when you go to these places where I went for my research and you talk to some of these people, it, the, the, no one's forcing them to buy a ticket, but it sure doesn't feel voluntary. It sure doesn't feel like they have any other choice but to buy a ticket because they really don't see themselves as having a better way out.
0: Yeah, and you've pointed this out in the book as well, that that with the hollowing out of the middle class, so to speak, which is a much more squishy argument. We won't get into it tonight. I'll, I'll, we could talk about it another time. That, yeah, uh, that you, indeed, How many
1: half-hour segments do you have?
0: <laughs> exactly, the dreams of getting, of getting rich of you know climbing the ladder have been, become much more um, much more difficult, so these are some of the only ways people only see this as a way out. Uh, Jonathan Cohen, thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating topic and uh, yeah we'll try and talk about it again.
1: Thanks, Ben, thanks for having me uh, and good luck.